notice with me Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 7. It says this, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you. Your elders, and they will tell you. Throughout the scripture, God constantly reminded the Israelites of their history. He wanted them to remember how he had blessed them so that they would not forget him and forget his ways. But Psalm 78 verse 11 tells us they forgot his works and, they, and the wonders he had shown them. But revival occurred when the Israelites remembered God's goodness and returned to his covenant. And today, as Americans and devoted followers of Christ, it is imperative that we remember our nation's history. George Orwell, who is the author of the famous book 1984, wrote, Who controls the past? controls the future, who controls the present, controls the past. In other words, those who want to push our country further away from God know that they must first rewrite our history. Today we have a generation of Americans who are historically illiterate. They have been led to believe that our nation's beginnings were deeply flawed, and that the founders of our country were deists and agnostics, and that this never really was a Christian country. So this morning, let us take a brief moment to examine and consider our nation's founding. This is a little different than the typical message that I have delivered in the past, but this is what's on my heart and I believe this is appropriate for this day. On December 20th, 1605, 105 settlers and 39 seamen set sail from the Thames Estuary near London in England for the New World. The Virginia Charter, established under King James I, stated among the reasons for the proposed colony, and I quote, to propagate the Christian religion to such people as yet live in darkness and miserable ignorance of the true knowledge and worship of God. Among the colonists was an Anglican minister, Robert Hunt. On April 26, 1607, Reverend Hunt led the group ashore at Cape Henry in present-day Virginia Beach. A seven-foot-tall cross which they had brought with them from England, was planted in the ground. Hunt led the colonists in a prayer of thanksgiving and dedicated the land to God. In his sermon, Hunt reminded them how the Lord had said, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up, Matthew 15, 13. Then, lifting up his hand toward heaven, Robert Hunt declared, From these very shores the gospel shall go forth to not only this new world, but the entire world. And even today, the cross still features prominently 
in the official seal of the city of Virginia Beach, my hometown. And today, I would say to you that I myself, in a very small measure, am part of the answer to his prayer and the fulfillment of his prediction. The colonists sailed 60 miles inland and established Jamestown, which became the first permanent English settlement in America, but just barely. At one point, the situation was so dire, so many of the settlers had died from starvation and disease and ongoing hostilities with the Powhatan Indians, that the few remaining colonists boarded the ship and headed home for England, only to be met by a supply ship upriver from England with fresh provisions and more people. And after some persuasion, they were encouraged to turn around and head back to Jamestown. America was almost aborted in its beginning. Church services in Jamestown were first held under an old sail from the ship until a church building was constructed. It was the first building built in Jamestown. It was in the center of the fort and the largest structure, and the colonists gathered three times a day for prayer. Church attendance was compulsory, and the church was also the site for the first representative form of government in America called the House of Burgesses. We often think that the pilgrims, we often think of the pilgrims in New England as having great religious fervor, but the Virginia colonists as being more nominal Christians. But by today's standards, I mean the standards of this world, the settlers in Jamestown would be considered religious fanatics. Those who have failed, failed to attend church in Williamsburg, they moved the capital to Williamsburg, those who failed to attend church in Williamsburg had to pay a fine. Sleeping in church was not permitted. The ushers in the church in Williamsburg were, uh, were held a long wooden pole in their hand with a wooden knob and a feather. If you were found sleeping in your pew, first the usher would reach across to you and tickle your nose with the feather. If that didn't work, he would knock you on the forehead with the knob. We are considering implementing that same measure here in this church. So keep us in prayer. The Mayflower Compact, the Mayflower Compact was written and signed by the pilgrims before coming ashore in 1620. It reads in part, and I quote, having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of our king and country, we propose, that's what they mean, we propose a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia. However, storms uh, sent them north and they landed in present-day Massachusetts, Plymouth Rock. The pilgrims originally had a what they called common storehouse economy, where all things were shared equally. It was basically socialism. It was well-intended, but it did not work. William Bradford, the governor of the colony, 
realized that those who had a slothful disposition were not motivated to work since they were provided for regardless of their labors. And those who were industrious soon became disenchanted since their efforts were not fairly rewarded. And the results of this experiment were disastrous. After two years, only a fraction of the pilgrims remained alive. The rest had starved to death. The elders gathered together and they decided to abandon socialism and embark on a new direction based on scripture, such as if any man will not work, neither shall he eat. And they pursued a course of private ownership, what we today call a free market economy, and then they flourished. As a nation, America was born in the midst of revival in what is commonly called the Great Awakening. In 1818, a young historian asked John Adams, who were the principal leaders in the movement for America's independence? Surprisingly, Adam named clergymen. He said that the truth that thundered from pulpits all across America lit a flame in the hearts of men. You should realize that pastors in the 18th century in America were not afraid to address controversial issues from a biblical perspective. Perhaps we tend to think that their sermons were more theological and esoterical in nature, but that's not true because we have the copies of their messages. They dealt with pressing issues, practical issues from a biblical standpoint, things like taxes, the role of government. They even addressed the issue of homosexuality based on the word of God. Ministers also played a vital, pivotal role in the war for independence. When the British sent 700 soldiers to Lexington, 70 church members from the congregation of Reverend Jonas Clark met them because their pastor had taught them, we have the right to defend ourselves. This was the shot heard round the world. Then at Concord, the British were met by 300 men from the church of Reverend William Emerson. As the British retreated to Boston over a distance of 19 miles, they were confronted by 4,500 Americans. These were men who had come from various congregations around the area who were rallied to the cause by their pastors. In 1774, the Provisional Continental Congress was first convened to discuss the possibility of separation from England. One of the first official acts of Congress was to have a prayer meeting. According to several accounts, the members of Congress prayed fervently for three hours. John Adams, who was present, 
later wrote to his wife Abigail of the meeting, he said, it was enough to melt a heart of stone. Several times during the Revolutionary War, the Continental Congress called for days of prayer and fasting, as well as thanksgiving to God. For example, in March 16, 1776, Congress declared, and I read, the Congress, desirous to have people of all ranks and degrees duly impressed with a solemn sense of God's superintending providence. What they mean is we want everyone in America to realize that God can work for us. God can do things for us. We do earnestly recommend a day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer that we may, with united hearts, confess and bewail our manifold sins and transgressions, and by a sincere repentance and amendment of life, appease his righteous displeasure, and through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, obtain his pardon and forgiveness. That was an act of Congress. That's just one example. Later, at the Continental Convention, Benjamin Franklin who was considered one of the least religious of the founding fathers, made the following speech on June 28, 1787, and I read, I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. So, by the way, he couldn't have been a deist. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this. And I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. He's referring to the Tower of Babel in the book of Genesis. I therefore beg leave to move. In other words, I'm putting forth this proposal. That henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our, on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business, and that one or more of the clergy of this city be requested to officiate in that service. To this day, both the Senate and the House of Representatives in Washington, D.C. begin each day in prayer, and no one thinks it is unconstitutional since the very people who wrote the Constitution established this practice. Were the founding fathers really Christians? There were 204 individuals who either signed the Declaration of Independence, signed the Articles of Confederation, attended the Constitutional Convention in 1787 and or signed the Constitution 
or served as senators and representatives in the first Congress. The overwhelming majority were professing Christians. And notably, not one of these 204 men were atheists, agnostics, or, quote, not religious, unquote. 29 out of 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence held the equivalent of a seminary or theology degree. Several signers were actively involved in ministry at the time of signing or had previously served in church work. Some of the founding fathers wrote and published gospel tracts. But how do we know what these founding fathers believed? It's not hard to know that. The founding fathers were prolific writers. George Washington's writings are contained in 97 volumes. Thomas Jefferson in 60 volumes. Ben Franklin, 40 volumes. John Adams in 33 volumes. More than any other source, our founding fathers quoted from the Bible in their writings. 34% of their quotations came directly from the Bible. The next highest source that they referred to, John Locke, who was also a deeply devoted Christian, was only 8.4% of the time used. Speaking of John Locke, in 1669, John Locke assisted in the drafting of the Carolina Constitution, under which no man could be a citizen unless he acknowledged God, was a member of a church, and used, quote, no reproachful, reviling, or abusive language against any religion. So you could not even be a citizen of North Carolina unless you knew God. John Adams, signer of the Declaration of Independence, our second president, said this, and I quote, the general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. Benjamin Rush, whose name may not be familiar to you, but was a key player in America's independence, signer of the Declaration of Independence, said this, my only hope of salvation is in the infinite, transcendent love of God manifested to the world by the death of his son upon a cross. Nothing but his blood will wash away my sins. I rely exclusively upon it. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. After July 4th, the now states were compelled to form their own constitutions and state governments. For example, the state of Delaware, the state of our current president. The state of Delaware included this in the oath of office. That is, those who were taking office were required to make this oath. I, insert your name, I do profess faith in God the Father and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, and the Holy Ghost, the one God blessed forevermore. 
And I do acknowledge the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration. You could not hold office in the state of Delaware unless you believed in the Bible. In the state of Virginia, one could not vote in an election unless he was a Christian and a member of a church. After the War of Independence, Congress convened to write the Constitution. And as you know, the First Amendment to the Constitution reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Today, we frequently hear the phrase separation of church and state, which has become a rallying cry for all God-haters. And this statement supposedly excludes any form of religion, but especially Christianity, in public life. But what did the writers of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights mean by the words used in the First Amendment? It's not difficult to know. We can read over the congressional records, which include the debate that surrounded these amendments in 1789. It is clear from reading the congressional records that these men wanted a Christian country, but they did not want a state-run church. When George Washington was inaugurated in New York City as our first president, he laid his hand on the Bible, took the oath, and then he took it upon himself to add these words, so help me God. In his inaugural address, Washington gave thanks to God and urged the newly formed government to earnestly seek him. Then, as part of the program, the entire Congress headed towards St. Paul's Church for a prayer meeting. Present in that meeting were the men who wrote the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. They evidently had no problem with Congress, including a church service as part of the official proceedings. One year after the Constitution was written in 1790, in one case in America, the courts ruled the following. By our form of government, the Christian religion is the established religion, and all sects and denominations of Christians are placed on the same equal footing. In 1844, a school in Philadelphia wanted to teach morality but not religion, or more particularly, not Christianity. In 1844, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled, and I, read, and I quote, Why may not the Bible, and especially the New Testament, be read and taught as a divine revelation in the school? Where can the purest principles of morality be learned so clearly or so perfectly than as from the New Testament. Some of the justices in that court 
had been appointed by James Madison himself. So where does the expression separation of church and state come from? It was contained in a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to several Baptist pastors from Connecticut. These ministers were concerned that the government would interfere in their right to worship God. Jefferson, in his letter, reassured them that the government would never interfere in their faith. What would you think, my friends, of a Democrat president who took federal money to buy Bibles to give to non-Christians? That's exactly what Thomas Jefferson did. Why? Because he believed in the Word of God. Prior to the Revolutionary War, the colonists in America were not permitted to print a Bible in English. By a royal decree, all Bibles had to be printed in England and brought to America. So on July 7th, 1777, Congress ordered, the U.S. Congress ordered 20,000 Bibles be imported from the nation of Holland. Later, in 1781, Congress commissioned a man, Robert Eichen, to print Bibles in America. The first Bibles printed in America were done by an act of Congress. Are you listening to me? Praise the Lord. There's some other things I want to touch upon, and I would ask you to listen to me carefully. Some have uh, maintained that all of our founding fathers were racists and slave owners. Uh, Senator Tim Kaine from my state of Virginia said on the floor of the Senate, the United States did not inherit slavery from anyone. We created it. I guess he never read the book of Exodus. Slavery is certainly a terrible thing, a horrible thing. But I should remind you that it has existed in this world for thousands of years. 30% of the population of the Greek Empire were, were slaves. 40% of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. Slavery existed long before America was conceived. The global African slave trade was from 1501 to 1875. During that time, about 10 million people were enslaved and forcibly sent around the world. 43% of those slaves went to Brazil. Only 2.5% were sent to the United States. Are you listening to me? In 1619, two English privateers intercepted a Portuguese slave ship off the coast of Virginia. The cargo and 19 slaves were offloaded in Jamestown. But they were not made slaves, my friends, because at that time, slavery was illegal in Virginia. They were made indentured servants. Now, you might say, well, how's that any better? America was built on the backs of indentured servants, the disaffected sons of England who could not afford passage across the Atlantic. It was very expensive. They offered them their labor for seven years, 
At the end of that seven years, they were given land and freedom. And that's exactly what happened to these men. A second shipload of slaves came to Massachusetts in the year 1642. The pilgrims freed the slaves and arrested the slave traders because the book of Exodus tells them that you shall not be involved in man-stealing. The churches in the northern states were interracial. All the units of the Continental Army were interracial. There were several black patriots who fought in the revolution, Revolutionary War. Men like, and we don't have time to name all of them, but men like James Armistead, who was America's first double agent. He was a spy, and he was for the American for the American cause, and he was instrumental in Washington winning the Battle of Yorktown. Three-fourths of the founding fathers were anti-slavery. Now, obviously, some of them were, and, and, and we're, not, we're, not, uh, we're not trying to gloss over that. But prior to the Revolutionary War, every time the Continental Congress attempted to ban slavery, King George III overruled them. The United States was the first nation to ban international slave trade in 1807, a law signed by Thomas Jefferson. The United States was the fourth nation to make slavery illegal in 1865. And to put that in perspective, today there are 94 nations where slavery is still legal. There are more slaves today in this world than ever were in the 19th and 18th centuries. Did you know that? We are not in any way saying that these people were perfect. That's not true. They're human beings like you and me, and they have flaws. We're not in any way suggesting that America has never made mistakes. That's not true. America has made mistakes. But to say that these men were just godless people, that they were bigot, all of them were just racist, bigoted people, that they were just agnostics and deists. That is a revision of history. That is incorrect. They were godly people, and, they, and by and large, the vast majority of them loved God dearly. This is our nation, and we don't need to be ashamed of it, but we do need to pray for na- this nation. Hallelujah. Amen. I want you to stand with me to your feet today. I suppose you didn't expect to get a civics lesson when you came to church this morning. And maybe it's a bit odd for a missionary from Northeast India to be sharing this to you, but but, um, I believe that um, we have a a responsibility to not only uphold this nation in prayer, but to boldly take a stand for Jesus Christ. In fact, to put it more bluntly, some Christians need to have a little more backbone. Hallelujah. 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 Praise the Lord. In my lifetime, America has transitioned from a Christian country that tolerates other faiths to a secular humanistic country that increasingly does not tolerate Christianity. But I say that we need God back in America again. Am I alone here today? And I believe that, I believe that we need to find our voice. I believe we need to herald the truth. Of course, we need to live it. But we do not need to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can you join with me today on this July 4th weekend in prayer for this great nation?
pray for those in leadership. Pray that the Spirit of God would speak to their hearts. And pray that churches across this nation will experience another great awakening. For as Pastor Mitch alluded to earlier, America needs revival. America needs revival. Church, let's lift up our voices together in mass and let us pray for this nation on this day. Come on, people. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. All because of the blood of the cross that gives us standing with you, Father. Pray today for this great nation that was born, born in revival, based on the principles of your word, led by your spirit. You have been merciful to us. But today there must be a rebirth of liberty and truth in this day. I pray, Father, from Washington, D.C., and from every capital, and from every pulpit in this nation, may the truth thunder that America needs God again. It is time for this nation to turn its back on the lies of hell. It is time for us once again to make a bold stand on the truth, the immutable truth of your word today. And it is time for us to boldly declare that Jesus Christ is Lord over this land. We will not allow the devil to take this country. We take a stand for truth and we are unashamed of the word of God. And by our actions, by our life, we endeavor to demonstrate the kindness and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for those in authority today. We pray that their hearts would be softened by your spirit and turn their face toward you. And if there are those who stubbornly resist you like Pharaoh of old, Father, remove them from office that righteousness may reign supreme in this nation again. We stand in the gap to turn back the tide of immorality and godlessness and sexual perversion, which would attempt to destroy a generation. We take our place. We are your people called by your name. and We humble ourselves. We ourselves repent and turn away from our wicked ways and seek your face so that you may hear from heaven. You may forgive our sins and you may heal our land. This day we pray that you may bless America. Oh God, please bless America. Hallelujah. In the name of Jesus. Can you lift up your voices toward heaven and give God praise in this house today? Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus.